down to earth on News Talk with a Monday, an asset manager investing in tomorrow today to shape a better world for all. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. From climate change to species extinction, we cover the toughest challenges here with leading experts and celebrated thinkers. You'll hear diverse views as we try to find common ground in how to fix our most pressing global crises. On the show today, you'll want to start your engines as we talk about the future of transport. Professor Brian Caulfield, Elaine Brick, and James Nix with their views on our mobility. The first man to circumnavigate the globe in both a balloon and a solar-powered plane, explorer Bertrand Picard, gives his radical solutions. And Senator Alice Mary Higgins is my guest this week for My Green Life, where she'll tell us how her interest in social justice led to her fighting for a cleaner planet. It's time to head down to Earth. We would also love to hear from you. We're talking about transport today. So how do you think we'll be commuting in a few decades? Will it be business as usual or a radical transformation with the likes of autonomous vehicles or hyperloops? You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. But now, with the need to reduce Ireland's transport emissions by 51% in the coming decade to address climate change, we are in need of some big changes in how we move around. And my next guests are on the front line in making those changes. Dr. Brian Caulfield is an associate professor in transport at Trinity College Dublin. Elaine Brick is the regional director for the global infrastructure consulting firm ACOM. And joining us from Brussels, James Nix is the director of freight and climate for the European NGO Transport and Environment. Welcome to the show, everyone. Brian, we have a huge challenge in Ireland to have our transport emissions over the coming decade and 75% of those transport emissions comes from cars yet you've argued that we can't simply rely on switching over to electric vehicles as the solution to this why not well the main reason I think that we we shouldn't is because of the cost that's associated with it Um, I know I, I said recently that it's about 10 billion that this kind of assumes that you know price parity doesn't come on the market um And if we were to invest that kind of money, it's like starting off building the metro, knowing that halfway through the price is going to escalate. Um, So I'm not sure it's that prudent. Um, Definitely, if we put if we had all the money in the world, we would put them into electric vehicles. We would have uh, reduced our emissions profile significantly. However, we're then still stuck with the need to build new roads, the need to um, change how we move. And a car is a car is a car. And we would still have congestion. So ten billion is that to replace all of our current petrol vehicles with electric vehicles? It, it, it's not even that. It's, I think it's about thirty six percent of of all vehicles by um, by twenty thirty, and that that will be the cost. But again, the caveat with that is assuming that price parity doesn't happen. And there have been some companies recently saying that they will bring down the price, but it's I, I just think it's too big of a risk um, to 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 rely on the a motor industry to to do that. I think. If we pushed out our target for EVs to maybe by five years, when you know there would be more confidence in them coming down in price, and then use that money for the big transport investment projects that we need, the big rail projects, but then also the smaller projects that have been so successful over lockdown to get people out and using active modes of transport. 
that's where I would spend my money. And that's where I think we would get a reduction in emissions. Well, I'm hoping listeners don't even need to be told anymore what we should be doing instead of driving around in these enormous single passenger vehicles, because I think we instinctively know that that's a really inefficient way to move people. And, you know, we've been having this conversation for decades now. So we know we need more public transport. We know we need more walking and more cycling infrastructure. Elaine, as a transport planner specializing in this kind of sustainable mobility, can you please explain to me why we haven't seen that kind of sustainable and active transport in Ireland that we've known we've needed for so long? My own view is that it's down to lack of chronic lack of investment over the past three or four decades and and also it just wasn't on the political agenda up until relatively recently transport 21 which was launched in 2005 was probably the first national commitment given to investment in public transport but then the recession hit in 20 and in 2011 a lot of those major schemes like metro north and dart underground were cancelled um um, smarter travel then came in 2009 this was our national policy for sustainable transport and it had it had very grand um, targets for a reduction in work-related trips by car from 65 percent to 45 percent by 2020 now if we had realized that by now of course it'd be absolutely fantastic but it still stands at around 60 percent nationally and to realize the target would have required the investment that had been planned in major public transport schemes and in um, a, a national cycle network and and urban cycle networks now there was plenty of investment in that period um since 2009 but not where it needs to be but look there is there are positive changes now project 2040 is committing um about around 9 billion on sustainable mobility up to 2027 and there's lots of projects in there um but the positive change is linked to um behavior and attitudes among our communities as well you know we've seen a massive increase in cycling and demand for public transport services people are saying we, we, we don't want to sit in our car in congestion anymore. They're looking for alternatives and they're turning to their politicians and saying, where are the bus lanes? Where's where's our light rail schemes and um, safer cycling facilities? So that will push the agenda for, for greater investment as well. You know, that smarter travel policy is being reviewed at the moment. And, um, you know, it'd be welcomed that, that that is reviewed this year and and renewed commitments to to financial investment in, in the massive infrastructure we need. So are you hopeful that we're going to achieve the kind of sustainable sustainable mobility that that you think we need now? Look, I think we are we're starting we're quite late, but um, I think there is a number of key investments in in each in Dublin and each of the urban city, uh, urban um, uh, areas that could really make a big difference and schemes like bus connects in Dublin and in the regional cities and all of our cities now have um, cycle network plans integrated plans for safe cycling infrastructure um, be it for um, school going children right up to the experienced adult we have the visions we have the plans we need the money we need the resources we need the skills and people to go out there and deliver this infrastructure now so i i don't think that funding is 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 is, is an issue any longer i think we we need the the plans and the the, the programs um to get it done now 
James, at the European level, trucks and vans for shipping all the goods we buy comprise about 25% of transport emissions, and, and those emissions may even be rising now due to our reliance on online shopping lately. So your organization dedicates a lot of time to addressing freight. How do we address that portion of transport emissions related to moving products? And you know, could we just electrify vans and trucks, or do we need to go further with this? Um, if I can, Carrie, just a quick a quick word. I wouldn't I wouldn't at all disagree with anything uh, Brian or Elena said. But one trend we're noticing at the European level, and I think it's mirrored in Ireland on passenger transport, is yes, uh, with the lockdown, you are seeing a very big uptake in cycling and walking. But we're also seeing a contradictory trend in parallel, which is uh, the growth of of larger car sales. I mean SUVs, and particularly large SUVs. It's up to about 40% now at the European level. So, and, and they are, I mean, there's a huge tension between those two trends in passenger transport because obviously SUV is wider. It, it, it pushes uh, cycling uh, down. 27% um, higher collision rate of the larger SUVs. They generally travel about seven to eight kilometers an hour faster. So there would be just two points I'd feed in on the, on the, on the passenger transport discussion uh, first. Yeah, I mean, on, on the freight side, um, obviously uh, a high level of freight movement to, to get particularly food produce uh, around Europe is going to be required uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, and uh, electrification, thankfully, is, is gathering momentum in this space. Uh, if you take companies like Scania, who would be one of the leading European truck makers, they say that 50% of all their new trucks will be fully electric um, by 2030. Uh, their sister company, the Volkswagen Group, MAN, has a similar, or MAN Trucks has a similar objective. Daimler is not far behind, slightly later date. Um, so there is this momentum on, on the truck side. Trucks are responsible for about double the emissions of vans. When we come to vans, there's actually less progress, and the, the van makers appear to have less ambition. Um, it's a very low percentage at a European level at the moment. Only one in 50 new vans is electric. That's, that's pathetic, really. Uh, contrast that with 10% um, of, of new passenger cars across Europe are either uh, fully electric or hybrids. Um, it's about a 50-50 split between the fully electrics and the hybrids on the passenger car side. So much more attention needed on the vans. A European Commission will come forward with a proposal in June, and really that needs to, at a minimum, ensure that 50% of all the production of new vans from 2030 onwards is what's known as zero emission, which is this, in, in, in the case of vans is essentially electric, very little or no, or no hydrogen is envisaged really there. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit of European perspective. I think tolling, I think Ireland could do an awful lot more on tolling to, um, to I think, achieve a more a fairer and a more reasonable spread um, um, of goods movement, or, or rather the capturing of the, the costs and, um, occasioned by goods movement. Couple of examples: If if um, if a truck goes from a South Dublin business park to either Rosslare or to Waterford City, no toll is payable. If the exact same truck goes from a a business park on the northern side of Dublin to either Cork or Galway, three tolls are payable, um, which isn't isn't a fair or reasonable system, really. Um, a lot of European countries, in fact, about half a dozen over the last five years have completely revamped their tolling system and the kind of model that Ireland could move towards would be a per kilometer system. Um, it's been just, it's been brought in 2016 in Belgium, uh, Germany updated its system 2018, Czech Republic, Slovenia, uh, Poland, actually Portugal, you know, you, you, 
there's a and there are many and many more have brought in distance-based charging uh, linked to the to the tonnage of the truck so there's a lot of things i mean yeah if there's time we, we could touch on rail freight as well but you know there's there's a lot can be done um on on the freight side and i think yeah ireland definitely needs to, to step it up there there's very very little attention apparent uh, on the freight side so the solutions seem clear the technology and the engineering know-how is all there to you know completely transform our transport system but we've got less than 10 years really to make this happen and, and to have emissions and we saw last year that transport emissions in ireland dropped 17 percent due to lockdown so we could have two more years of lockdown, that would get us to a 50% reduction, but no one wants that kind of extreme measure. So I'm going to open this seemingly impossible question up to all of you. How can we make this kind of transformation in the short time we have left? If I can come in there first, I suppose in the short time that we have left, um, the nine-year envelope, um, things like Metro and things like Lewis extensions probably may not even be operational in that time period, given delays, etc., um, it would seem likely, obviously, the electric car is the way to do it. But I think we really need to kind of rethink about how we move, where we move and why we move um, and look at models that they're looking at in Paris and Barcelona and Melbourne around 15 minute cities. And we, we really consider what's in our what's in our location. And, and we all know what's in our location, especially our five kilometer location at the moment. But thinking like that, I think, will reduce our emissions, whether we can do it. Um, in transport to 51% because we're trying to bend a curve that hasn't bent in a long, long time. Perhaps maybe there are other sectors in the, in the carbon piece that could reduce emissions quicker and then enable transport to have a longer lead-in period because we're trying to change fundamentally how people move um, and that's related to where they live. Um, and, and, and that's the really difficult thing that we have um, to, to make this change. Yeah, I would agree what, with what Brian has said there around the, the major infrastructure schemes that we have planned. Um, it's going to take 10 years and more possibly to get a lot of those delivered. But all is not lost because there are massive amount of quick wins that we can use to improve the flow of buses and to, to improve our cycle network. Um, and in addition to, to quick win and lower scale investment to address those things, um, behavioral change programs as well, um, influencing people's mode, um, decisions around the mode that they choose. And this is as you pointed out, Cara, is, 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 is more practical in urban areas where people have the alternatives. It would be harder to impact um, the behaviour of rural, rural residents. But look, COVID over the past year has, has taught us how we can work remotely. And a survey undertaken by ACOM demonstrates that about um, in a national re nationally representative survey shows us about 70% of commuters would like to work um, remotely more after COVID and after after in a post-COVID world and after lockdown. And, and they're also saying that the 10% of people are intending to change to active modes. And so com this combined with the government's national remote working strategy means that if you are living in a rural area, like myself actually, um, I, I may never need to go 
into to, to my um, local urban area or into my office um, ever again if I don't need to, if I if I want to. Um, but also in terms of those quick wins, we need investment in park and ride on the outskirts of our cities and on, on the main arterial routes. This will pick up the the um, demand that's coming from rural areas and encourage people to shift buses and 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 um, you know the investment in um, bus lanes and especially some key bottlenecks. We we have them in all our cities. If we can get the buses through those bottlenecks, um, um, some of those schemes could be delivered in in a, in a four to five year sort of time frame as opposed to 10 years and um yeah, look, it, it's unfortunate that we're left in a position now where we, we we need to make this change quickly, but we did sit on and we were tied with lack of investment for the past 20 years. It's it's very unfortunate the position now that, you know, we we need solutions fast and um, it, this quick win. Change. Behavioural change presents massive opportunities and um, there have been programmes in Ireland that demonstrate the, the potential around the travel areas programme. James, do um, you agree? Can, yeah, well, if I can pick up on, on the rural transport point, I mean, there's a great irony at the moment in that an awful lot of people living in rural areas actually end up, just to go for a simple walk, end up driving into an urban area because there are footpaths or safe, safe spaces that they can exercise in. Um, and, and often coming up against the five kilometer limit in these cases. So, you know, I think there could and should be some pilot projects where, you know, solid white lines are simply painted a meter or a meter and a half out from the road edge. Um, that area need, near the road edge is designated pedestrian cycle priority. And then the motorist has to slow down. The motorist has to be prepared um, to encounter um, a cyclist or a pedestrian in that space. And, uh, you know, these are the kind of projects that I think will unlock walking and cycling in rural Ireland to a far greater extent than, than has even been tried uh, ever before. On the, on the urban side, yeah, I mean, the potential for quick wins is enormous. Bus electrification is years behind in Ireland compared to Dutch cities, Danish cities, Paris, Berlin, Hamburg, all, all of the major European capitals, really, who've all made very, you know, most of them have made very strong commitments that their fleets will be 100% e-bus. Uh, certainly by 2030 with the Dutch cities and the Danish, uh, particularly Copenhagen Danish cities moving significantly ahead of that. So there's no, uh, there's no longer really any, any excuses. Uh, there were for many years doubts that uh, double-decker buses um, uh, could, be could, could be produced in large numbers um, um, in, in, using, electric using an electric powertrain. That's no longer the case. They've been proven in London. Uh, over the past three, four years, and I think it now really is is the is is time to to start a large scale procurement. I think it's beginning. I think there was a recent tender for up to eight hundred uh, e buses for Dublin, but again, all the uh, the gateway cities um, uh, across Ireland they they also need the single decker buses, typically twelve twelve point five meters. They they've been electric for years in in. Um, in many of the leading European cities. And uh, again, a quick win, it's a procurement change. Um, total cost of ownership um, means that the, the lower running costs of an electric bus um, deliver over the full lifetime of, of the bus about a 10 to 12%, what's known as TCO or total cost of ownership saving. So it's, it's a no brainer. 
And uh, yeah, there needs to be, I guess, some political pressure just to get on and do it. Well, an endless selection of options to choose from. Professor Brian Caulfield, Elaine Brick and James Nix, thank you all for joining the conversation here on Down to Earth. Up next, explorer Bertrand Picard gives us his vision for the future of transport. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Just a reminder that in a few minutes, we'll be talking to Senator Alice Mary Higgins about her green life, where she'll tell us how her interest in social justice led to her fight for a cleaner planet. But first, this. To anywhere I please. Oh, I want to get away. Fly away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lenny Kravitz there, but I think we all want to get away. And I couldn't think of a more appropriate sentiment to lead into my next guest with. He is a serial explorer who was the first man to fly away nonstop around the world in a balloon in 1999 and then in a solar-powered airplane in 2010. Bertrand Picard is the visionary behind Solar Impulse, the very first airplane capable of flying around the world without fossil fuel. That endeavor has grown into the Solar Impulse Foundation, presenting a thousand solutions that can protect the environment in a profitable way. Bonjour, Bertrand. It's an honor to have you on the show. No one can deny that the modes of transport that you've used to explore the world are certainly innovative. So I have to start by asking you, what on earth made you think it was a good idea to go around the world, first in a balloon and then in a solar-powered airplane? Because I believe it's always important to have a pioneering spirit, to explore, to achieve what people believe is impossible, and inspire people to go beyond their limits and innovate and especially now for the world we need this pioneering spirit also to protect the environment to fight climate change to take the right decisions also on political economical social levels so how well did the solar impulse airplanes stand up to that challenge of going around the globe i wanted to demonstrate with solar impulse that clean technologies and renewable energies can achieve the impossible And today, it's very impactful when I hear politicians who told me that solar impulse was a trigger in their mind to think differently in terms of energy, because people always speak of producing more energy. And solar impulse was an example of energy efficiency. You take renewable energies, but you use it so well that you can achieve a flight around the world flying even in the night with solar energy. So I think it was useful Uh, on the political level, but it was also very useful for the Solar Impulse Foundation to have the credibility to launch the new challenge, which is to bring 1,000 solutions to protect the environment in a financially profitable way. So this is very practical. It's the direct result of the flight around the world of Solar Impulse. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you about some of those solutions, but I own an electric vehicle and I have had many moments driving across the country where you know my battery has dropped so low and I don't know if I'll make it to the next charge point. Did you ever have any kind of touch and go hairy moments when you were flying around the world in Solar Impulse? No, no. Uh, every morning we have the battery about 10%. Uh, so if there was no sun, it would have been a disaster, but the weatherman always forecasted good tracks and path to get the sun in the morning and continue the flight the next day, recharge the battery, use it the next night. 
and, and so on. And what you say about the, the electric mobility, it shows that you are a pioneer. Uh, in a few years, everybody will drive with an electric vehicle, either battery or, or hydrogen, and will think it's obvious, but it's true. Now I also drive a, an EV, it's a Hyundai Kona, and um, I have to manage the electricity in order to go where I want. And, and, and it's fun, it's, it's challenging. It sounds like it's it's more challenging to drive your EV than it was to drive your uh, fire solar powered airplane. But, you know, flying can make up such a significant part of a person's carbon footprint. So, for example, a nonstop flight from London to New York accounts for as much carbon round trip as heating an average family home here for an entire year. And it's really one form of transport that we don't have an obvious environmentally friendly solution to. So do you think solar airplanes are going to be the answer to that problem in the future? or do you envision more solutions for aviation? So there are two things I want to say. First, solar aviation allowed us to fly day and night, but it was a very slow fly. There was no passenger aboard. So probably for the future, it will be airplanes also with an electric engine like solar impulse, but batteries would be charged on the ground or it can be with a fuel cell and hydrogen. It can be also with biofuels or synthetic kerosene. There, there are a lot of things that we can do, but let's not forget one thing. Aviation is not the biggest polluter today. Aviation is between two and a half and 3% of the CO2 emissions, uh, which is comparable to digital, which is the half of textile, uh, which is uh, 12 times less than the, the, the buildings in the world. So we see that we need to remain open to making everything better. Uh, but if the people who don't fly attack airplanes and the people who don't drive attack uh, cars and the people who don't, uh, uh, I don't know what, uh, attack the others, uh, it will be an exclusive and not inclusive uh, collaboration. And I really emphasize the fact that if we want to speak about aviation, it's clear that we have to do something, but before, the technology will allow to have completely clean hydrogen or biofuel airplanes or battery airplanes. We have to offset the CO2 uh, uh, emissions produced by the passengers. And this is the problem of the airlines. It's not the problem of the constructors of the airplanes or the passengers. The airlines have to uh, pay the, the cost or have the passenger pay the cost for the CO2 he's emitting which means that tomorrow morning aviation can be carbon neutral. And this we should not forget that it's decisions that can be made already today, even if the technology will evolve in the next 20, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Aviation fuel is is heavily subsidized, so we're, it's not reflecting the environmental damage it does. I mean, when we're through all of these COVID travel restrictions, I think people will be dying to get on an airplane and go somewhere. So particularly people here in Ireland where we're stuck on this little rock. So how concerned are you about how that might further worsen the situation? You mentioned aviation is a small percentage of global emissions, but it's growing at an unprecedented rate and could grow even faster as a result of that to travel more after COVID? I believe that there is a big paradox in aviation. Um, the tickets are so cheap that the margin for the, for the airline is too small and they need to fly a lot of people all the time in order to make a bit of profit. And then when you have one year of pandemic with the COVID, 
uh, all the airlines are asking for subsidies because they don't have enough money to spend one year of bad business. It's not normal. It's not normal. Uh, we should have airplane tickets that are more expensive, that include the price of CO2 for the, for the offset of CO2. And people need to go back to a reasonable use of, of, of air travel. Because today, going from a country to another just to drink a coffee, uh, this is absurd. This is Down to Earth on News Talk. My guest right now is explorer Bertrand Picard. Bertrand, when did the penny drop for you that climate change was really you know, the big issue of our time and something you wanted to dedicate so much of your life to? All my family was already involved in protection of the environment. When my grandfather made the first flight ever to the stratosphere in 1931, that was to show that it was possible to fly above bad weather in thinner air, consuming less fuel. And when my father went down to the bottom of the ocean in the Mariner Trench in 1960, it was to show that there was life down there in a period of time where the governments wanted to dump their radioactive and toxic waste in the ocean's trenches. So all my education was about using technology to protect the environment, to reduce fuel consumption, to, 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 to protect biodiversity. So I always thought, I have to do something when it will be time. And Solar Impulse was the opportunity to make a big project that had a lot of uh, coverage in the world, being able to spread a message. And that was really the moment where I thought, okay, my father and grandfather did their part, now I have to do my part. So following the success of your first solar flight around the world, you launched the Solar Impulse Foundation's 1,000 Solutions to Protect the Environment in a Profitable Way. So what motivated you to take on this latest challenge with the Solar Impulse Foundation? Because I am not only an explorer, I'm also a psychiatrist. And um, I treated patients for, for more than 20 years. And it was always my observation that if I wanted to make a change in their life, I had to speak their language. I couldn't speak my language that they could not understand. And it's exactly the same for the protection of the environment. The, the decision makers, politicians, finance people, economic people, business leaders, they have a language of profit and job creation. And this is the language you have to speak to them if you want to protect the environment. So the challenge for me in the last five years after completing the flight around the world with Solar Impulse was to have enough proofs that protecting the environment was more profitable than to destroy it. And uh, that's the reason why I launched this challenge of identifying 1,000 solutions that protect the environment in a financially profitable way. And uh, this is a, a toolkit that I can bring now to decision makers in order to allow them or to help them or sometimes to push them <laughs> to, to, to reach their environmental targets. Because a lot of governments, they say, we're going to be neutral in CO2 in 2050, but they don't know how to reach the goal. They don't have the tools, they don't have the roadmap. I want to give them the tools to really do the job and be carbon neutral in 2050 because the solutions exist and they have to use them. There's a growing degrowth movement which attests that the metrics like gross domestic product or GDP don't correlate to equality and well-being and that we need to limit economic growth actually to prevent 
environmental destruction and social inequality. So how can you be sure that those 1,000 solutions can improve both economy and environment and not, you know, negatively impact social inequality? They have been assessed by experts. We have a group of 400 uh, external and independent experts, and they assess all the solutions, all the technologies, the processes, the systems, the devices that are submitted to us under three criteria. The criteria of being credible today. It needs to work today, not a vague idea for the future. It needs to protect the environment. It needs to be financially profitable for the industry who produces it and for the consumer. It means that the consumer needs to be able to save money by using these technologies. And if the three criteria are met, then the foundation delivers the solar impulse efficient solution label. So it's really something that is useful for the economy, useful for uh, the environment. And like this, you create new jobs, you do a wonderful social development, allowing regions that are heavily dependent on coal or uh, kerosene for their generators to produce electricity, to shift to renewable energies, to microgrid, to energy efficiency. And each time you will create jobs, allow local development, uh, create wealth in the poorest regions. So it is something that allows, as it is said at the United Nations, a just transition. Well, I spent hours last night looking through the 1,000 solutions on solarimpulse.com. It was really impressive. And, and there were quite a few on transport, which is the focus of our show today. So what technologies in those solutions do you see for transport and mobility that are particularly interesting? There is one that I love. Uh, it's called Antismog. And uh, it's, um, it's a startup from the UK who has developed a, a module uh, that you install on the thermal engine in your car, diesel or gasoline. And it cuts 20% of the fuel consumption. And it cuts also 80% of the emission of toxic particles. So on a taxi, for example, with a fuel saving, the payback time is six months. So it is profitable. And this type of system allows to retrofit all the gasoline or diesel cars uh, uh, until everything will be electric. So it's a way to, to use what we have in a better way instead of just throwing away the, the thermal engines to shift to electricity, which will be a problem because you have to build a lot of new cars. So retrofitting, new, uh, retrofitting old cars is also a good solution uh, before we all drive on electric. One of the ones that jumped out at me was something about autonomous freight. So how far away do you think we are from that kind of concept of, of self-driving freight vehicles? Um, I don't know. And, you know, I hope I will not seem completely uh, uh, outdated with my answer, but I don't really care. Uh, autonomous driving is really not the thing that fascinates me the most. I love to drive and I love this concentration focus that I need to drive well. Uh, so um, I don't really care about autonomous driving. That's spoken like a true pilot. I, on the other hand, hate driving and can't wait for the car to drive itself. <laughs> my no, it's, I'm a pilot and I want to steer my car, my airplane, my 
glider or whatever. A bit of a control <laughs> thing going on there. My thanks to Bertrand Picard from Solar Impulse Foundation for contributing to this episode of Down to Earth. Stay tuned is coming up next. Senator Alice Mary Higgins will be telling me about her green life. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. Today, Senator Alice Mary Higgins joins us on Down to Earth. Welcome, Senator Higgins. Um, lovely to be here, Cara. Thanks for coming. I've I've been following you now since 2016 as the first woman in 35 years elected to the NUI panel of the Shannon. And you're one of just a handful of senators in Ireland that has really prioritized environmental legislation and, and policy issues. So when did that interest in environmental issues begin for you and how? Um, I suppose I, I would have had you know an interest in environmental issues. I think you know I would have become a vegetarian as a child and had uh, those kinds of concerns. But Really, for me, a lot of my focus um, had been on equality issues. Uh, I'd come to equality issues um, through initially studying theatre and cultural studies, and then I went and, and studied and lived in America and would have been quite involved in different movements there, including Another World is Possible. And when I came back to Ireland in 2004, I was really working on, on equality issues. For me, I was working in anti-racism, I was working on gender equality. And for me, I suppose, an interesting point for me is when I went and, and started working for Trocra in about 2007 or 2008 is when I realized the extent to which the environment is also an equality issue. And that was something that became really clear to me, uh, in particular, when I was at the, the very disappointing uh, UNFCC climate talks in 2009 in, in Copenhagen. And you really saw the imbalance of power in relation to the environment um, in terms of large countries who were able to push issues off the agenda, push issues on the agenda, and at the same time, this huge inequity in terms of the causes and the impacts of climate change. Uh, I, I would have, for example, seen, I remember visiting Malawi and visiting projects that we were supporting and meeting really amazing civil society activists in Malawi who were getting you know, having huge impacts from climate change back in 2008. Um, and they were taking actions and they were looking to reduce the, the footprint in every way they could. And yet in, in Ireland, the emissions were so much higher. So, you know, I really remember thinking these people are coming up with really brilliant projects. They're conserving energy. They're trying to mine the environment. And at the same time, they actually should be just so angry because the driver uh, of all of this damage around them has been uh, richer countries in the developed world. I was uh, just looking, because I remember talking about it at the time and I wondered where it is now. I think the last figures that I found were from 2016, you know, that a person in Malawi is producing 0.1 tonnes of emissions every year, whereas uh, every person in Ireland uh, um, is producing effectively seven, well, obviously not every person in Ireland is producing 7.9 mm -hmm. uh, tonnes, but it is 7.9 tonnes per person in Ireland in terms of the emissions. So, you know, we're 80 times the emissions of people in developing countries. So I think that climate justice piece was really important to me. And that's kind of what brought me in then into the detail, into the science of climate change, into the kind of deeper into environmental policy. 
you're a big advocate of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals that were launched in 2015. And those were 17 goals addressing the big global challenges of our time. And, and I think recognizing that role that environmental issues has in human rights, which so closely aligns to your personal values that you just mentioned. So how do you see those really aspirational goals actually solving the enormous global challenges that we face over the next decade? Okay, maybe first of all, in, I don't even think that they are aspirational. I think that they are immensely, deeply practical. That's when I look at the sustainable development goals and I look at, you know, I, I always say that they're not just an inspiration or kind of a Pinterest reference, that they are actually a real blueprint uh, because this is, these are 17 goals cutting, you know, obviously there's a goal on climate, but there's also goals like life on, life on earth, life on land, uh, life uh, in water, you know, they really, sustainable cities and communities, which is uh, SDG 11, which is one I think is really relevant at the moment when a lot of towns uh, and cities across Ireland are developing new, new plans. And for me, the, the thing I say about politics and policy in general always is, it really is a set of decisions about how we live together, be that at community level, city level, uh, be that at that international level. And for me, the SDGs are a really useful blueprint for what it might look like to live together in a more sustainable and more equal way. And they're also a really useful language that I can use, for example, talking to other parliamentarians around the world. So I can talk to, you know, a, a senator in Mexico. Um, I can talk to a parliamentarian in uh, Uganda and we can have a common discussion about, you know, these, this set of real issues that affect how we live together. You know, so it's, we can talk about um, how, what it means to have a, a sustainable communities and how they're approaching it. Or we can talk about um, what affordable and accessible energy looks like um, in a way that's sustainable. So I think it's, it's a common language for me and I think it's a really common set of reference points. And it's also a way for us across the world to hold each other to account. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's something that's really important because, you know, a charitable model, which is the kind of frame that we sometimes hear talked about in, in development, um, hides a lot of historical inequality. Whereas when we talk about an empowering frame like the SDGs, we are talking about recognizing the interdependence in the world. I mean, I think we've, it's never been more clear uh, than in the last year. But I think for those of us concerned about climate, we know how interdependent we all are. Do you think we're taking the SDGs seriously in Ireland? I mean, they've been around now for six years. Do you see them being implemented? I think Ireland has a really good record in terms of that in negotiating them. And, I, you know, huge credit does need to go to, I think, Ireland and Kenya were really the two countries that, that led in, in getting this kind of vision document. And it was, this is really important because... It was, I think, along with the Paris climate uh, targets, these were two moments of kind of multilateral vision um, that set out what might be possible. And they're really important because they came really just before um, uh, what we've seen in terms of there's been a rise in a different version of power, uh, of politics that's, that's more about big powers and patronage and client countries and you know, small groups of friends in terms of countries rather than uh, that kind of uh, politics of principle, if you know what I mean. So I, I have to give credit on that, but no, I do think we need to do an awful lot more in really delivering these. And I think what's really important for Ireland to understand 
uh, on climate as well as on, on the SDGs is that these aren't add-ons. You can't kind of simply add on a little bit of an environmental fund or a little bit of climate action or a, a, you know, a flourish in terms of green action. And similarly, you can't just add in an SDG project. They aren't something you add on to business as usual. These are about changing business as usual. Like they really need to be transformational. And I think that Ireland is willing to kind of sometimes embrace these ideas, but when it comes to actually shifting vested powers, shifting the way that we would have done things previously uh, and really changing, um, then that's where it can come up against uh, reluctance and barriers. And we just really need um, to raise the bar on our ambition in terms of um, not just doing things, but doing things differently. You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk. My guest for My Green Life is Senator Alice Mary Higgins. Alice Mary, back in 2016, you proposed the first parliamentary motion in the world to vote against CETA, which is a trade agreement between Canada and Europe. And and since then, most of CETA has actually become operational, and the European Court of Justice has given some reassurances that that last piece of it, which is the investor courts, which are a part of so many global trade agreements and allow corporations to sue countries if the country negatively impacts their profits. But the European Court has now said that those investor courts won't compromise national regulations as so many people feared they might. So what's your opinion now of CETA since it's essentially in operation? And does that European court opinion assuage some of your past concerns about the investor courts? So first, my motion was, in fact, to say that the trade component and the investor court are kind of a arbitration mechanism, that that part, that those were separate elements. And I I took my motion in 2016, it was actually successful to say there's going to be a ruling in 2017, which is going to say that it's a really different thing to trade uh, and versus to give away your sovereignty during to to investors um, through a parallel court system. And in fact, the 2017 ruling that came from the European Court of Justice as well said the trade component is an EU, uh, an EU competence that can go ahead, uh, but that the investor courts needed national ratification. So that was really interesting that that 2017 ruling effectively vindicated the position that people had said that investor courts are an unnecessary, an extra element that's added to trade agreements. And what we're deciding on now in Ireland really is just that investor course, the trade, the tariff reductions, anything positive. Uh, that might come out of CETA. And like I say, there are problems with some of that as well, but the the positive parts are the trade parts. They're already happening. Mm -hmm. Um, The investor court system is a huge issue still because effectively it's a parallel new legal system that will allow corporations to take cases if they feel they are unfairly impacted by regulations. And that is still the case. We've already seen across the world that these cases and you know that language you know that's there about you know unfair treatment that's the same language being used in the ISDS cases taken across the world um, around water policy around extraction we've seen the laws the climate laws in France getting diluted we've seen cases taken in the Netherlands it really does create a chilling effect on good legislation and this is the really important piece it's a chilling effect you know, for good governments that want to do good policies, it's an excuse for governments that don't want to put in ambitious environmental policies. And it creates a kind of a counter pressure. 
because something we've seen really interestingly right across the world is, for example, really good climate litigation by citizens who have been pushing their governments to do more, to be more ambitious, to deliver on environmental and emission reduction targets. And what we would be doing is taking that, is, is create, if we brought in an investor court system, is absolutely gratuitously adding in a whole different legal system that could create a counter pressure to that good momentum uh, for environmental law. And as I say, on CETA, it's a, you know, on the investor court system, they're a bad idea anytime, but they're a particularly bad idea right now for two reasons. One being that the next five years are probably going to have to be the most ambitious years in terms of environmental regulation in Ireland, in Europe, you know, and indeed right across the world. We're going to have to do more and better environmental lawmaking in the next few years than we have in 20 years. I mean, we are in what the UN are calling the decade of action. So that's less than 10 years to make a radical difference in terms of emissions reduction and environmental protection. And that's why it's so important that the government published our climate bill before Easter and that it puts uh, that 51% uh, reductions by 2030, that commitment into law. And it also reflects the kind of recommendations from our climate action committee in terms of a joined up approach on just transition, biodiversity and climate justice. Um, and the other thing is because the tide is going out on these. The EU-China deal does not have any investor courts. The UK-EU deal doesn't have investor courts. And even in the US and Canada, they have actually removed investor arbitration from their trade deals between each other. So, so your opinion, it sounds like your opinion is even more emphatic than it was in 2016. Um, I, I just wanted to get to one point that you have some big news regarding a bill that you're putting forward on public procurement, which may sound like it has nothing to do with environmental issues, but you've argued that it does. So why do you think procurement is key to addressing sustainability here in Ireland? I, I think it is because, um, you know, how we spend money really matters. Ireland spends 12 billion every year in public procurement. And uh, my legislation would make quality be at the centre of that. So at the moment, you can choose to spend that money based, you know, give contracts for goods and services and big public works just based on price alone or based on price and quality. And my bill would really push for price and quality to be the default and for going with price only to become an exception rather than a rule. And I think why that really matters for the environment is once you have a conversation about quality, when you're spending public money, you're opening the space to put in better environmental standards to reward, for example, companies. Um, you know, we talk a lot about bad practice from companies. But one thing that I think this legislation that I'm bringing in would do would, would allow for rewarding good companies and companies, which so many companies have made a huge effort to raise environmental standards, to source materials sustainably, indeed to give decent working conditions um, to people right down their supply line, which also contributes to better environmental outcomes. So I think this legislation, by placing quality in the centre of that 12 billion that Ireland spends every year, would also place, give the opportunity to place environmental standards. And once we, if we think about it, the Irish state is one of the biggest customers in Ireland. And if we start using that power and using that leverage in a really effective way, we raise the standards and expectations across so many areas of public goods and services and works. And one thing that I've said is that when we have a really big once in a lifetime projects, 
uh, things, you know, like big hospitals, major works, it's important that we would have at least 50% quality on that. And that really gives space to make sure that what we build, we build sustainably and to really high standards. I think it's, it's future-proofing, really. And that's when, when we talk about these economic policies and how, for me, economy, equality and environment, they fit together. It is a joined up piece. And that's why when we talk about these big instruments and changes, I think it is around raising our ambition. It's not about, you know, economy versus environment or equality. It is about a joined up picture. And I think that we can have better economic policies that deliver more equality and which recognize the fact that we live in a, a very beautiful, uh, fragile, precious environment and that we want it to be as healthy as possible. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing the government move away from this uh, propensity for going with the cheapest, dirtiest tender to maybe something that looks more at quality and and long-term sustainability. So my thanks to Senator Alice Mary Higgins for letting us into her green life. And that's it. Thank you so much, Cara. Thank you, Alice. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. Thank you for listening. And thanks to my producer, Alex Rousseau, for this episode. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the series on podcast at Newstalk.com or on the Newstalk app. Next week, it's time for some tree hugging as we talk about forestry. But until then, stay curious.